It's showtime. Don't say it, please. Don't say it. No, I have to say it, Mitch. Showtime. Showtime. It's showtime, everybody. Showtime. Hello and welcome back to the Showtime Movie Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Show. Thank you for listening. And uh, you know what? If today's episode sounds a little different, that is because I am... Well, I, I guess we could call it trying something new, right? I guess we could call it that. That is, in theory, what we are doing. But the truth is far simpler. And the truth is that I am a stupid human being. I am a stupid, stupid man. <laughs> uh, I can't believe I'm about to admit to this. But so, okay, I guess maybe we go back a couple steps. I use, in the recording of this podcast, I use what's called a Blue Yeti microphone, okay? It was given to me by, I think I may have mentioned this before, my cousin, who was formerly my roommate. He has moved out to live with his uh, his girlfriend. Um, I do kind of miss him. I don't think he listens to the podcast, so I can say that, right? <laughs> but uh, I use the podcast. I think he used to do, like, Let's Play videos on YouTube. I think if you Google, like, Fight Club, was that what it's called? No, Punch Club let's play or a punch club walkthrough he like talks over footage of you know playing this punch club game which i think is on steam or whatever but anyways that's beside the point um he didn't do those things anymore when he moved back to toronto from new york and he gave me the podcast microphone for for work largely because as i've mentioned before i work at a radio station but uh, i've been using it during the pandemic to record from home because during the non-pandemic years i.e the rest of our lives i usually recorded the the podcast out of the uh the studios you know the the microphone setups at work and hopefully we'll get back to that in the next year or so but for now i am still at home uh using this blue yeti microphone all right so all of the episodes well not all because i guess some of them i've used my headset microphone but at least for the past, I want to say maybe five episodes, maybe more, maybe more than that, maybe all the episodes in 2021, and certainly a whole chunk in 2020, I've been using this microphone, and the the simple truth is that I was recording it backwards. I was lit, like the microphone was fit, like the input on the microphone was facing away from me, and I was speaking, because the... This thing has a couple of different settings on it, and I guess one is like the radioid, I don't know what the hell it's called, right? But it's the one where it's only, I guess because you can have it so I can sit on one side of the mic, you can sit on the other side of the mic, and we can have a, we can have a, a, a one-on-one conversation away from the mic, and it only picks up from like north and south, let's say, on the microphone, right? Um, you can set it up so it's, it's, it takes in four locations, right? North, south, east, and west. Uh, or you can set it up, as I think is the most common use for any microphone, uh, just in one direction, which is, uh, so I guess, the south, I suppose, because you're sitting with it facing you, essentially, right? Well, because I am a stupid, stupid man, uh, I was sitting, I guess, essentially, or I had, the, I had it facing away from me, so I was essentially sitting at the north side, and, and it's picking up on the south side, so it's probably why it sounded echoey. I think it does sound better now, but um, there you go. I just spent three minutes talking about why I am a stupid human being, so there you go. So uh, hopefully this means that the podcast episodes sound better going forward, um, and I guess, you know, hopefully before too long we're back in the studio in fact uh they actually they rapid test you before you go into the building so you know you spend an extra 15 minutes getting to work but at the same time it does mean that everyone inside the building doesn't have covid which makes me feel a lot better about going into work so hopefully in the near future 
um, I can go in and record much better sounding things for you all. Uh, so there you go. Um, uh, funnily enough, we're into the summer months, so, uh, cause we are officially into July, and now that we are, a lot of the bigger releases are coming out. It does feel kind of like, uh, nature is healing a little bit, right? We are finally getting into the big releases. It's funny to think that because basically no big movies came out in the year of 2020, you know, a handful did, but by and large, the big blockbuster releases that you'd have seen over the summer did not come out in 2020. And, I mean, it's it's July now, and we only got news earlier today that theaters are reopening in Ontario next week, right? So... I know theaters have been reopened in in the United States and other parts of the world much sooner, but it's just funny to think that even in 2021, where everyone was like, as soon as the clock hit midnight on New Year's Eve, everyone was kind of like, oh my gosh, 2021 is going to be so much better than 2020, when in fact it was exactly the same. It was more of the same, maybe even worse in some cases, right? So, um, but having said that, the uh, the movie calendar is finally healing or returning to some semblance of normalcy because now all of the movies that did not come out in 2020 and all of the movies that did not come out in the first half, let's say, of 2021 are now being crammed into July, August, September, October, November, December, right? So between now and the end of 2021, I feel like we're going to have a lot of podcast episodes. I may have to up the storage on this uh, on this, on this this service, the hosting service account, because, um, yeah, there are going to be a ton of movies. Either that or we just cram in a lot more reviews into each episode. Uh, so, for example, we're doing three uh, movies, movie reviews. In this episode, we're going to talk about The Tomorrow War, we'll talk about Black Widow, and we'll talk about No Sudden Move. All very different movies, uh, funnily enough. Um, I didn't think I'd be funny. I don't think I've ever spent a podcast episode talking about two movies where David Harbour was in the same film. Have I ever done that? If I have... Feel free to let me know, but I don't think so. I, I, I truly don't think so. So uh, we'll get to all those in a second. But yeah, I'm re- I am really excited that uh, movies are returning. Um, like, like I said, theaters reopening here in Ontario, Canada in the next week, which means that maybe by the following week, but maybe by like the end of July, I will I will have been able to have seen Fast 9, right? So Again, you know, who knows? And I think I've mentioned this before, but I'm getting married in August, and the fiance says that she doesn't want me uh, necessarily going to movies too much, at least before the wedding. And after the wedding, I can do whatever the hell I want. <laughs> she, I just don't think she wants me to go somewhere where it's not controlled, like work, and then potentially even come into contact with someone who could have COVID, and then the wedding is sort of derailed. You know what? I I think that's relatively reasonable. That may be reasonable, right? So. We'll see what she says when I ask her about going to the movies. I know, isn't that crazy? I'm already saying, oh, i got to ask the wife about doing this <laughs> this kind of thing. I'm told that's common, though. I'm told that's common. So if you're married, hey, uh, you let me know if that is common or not. But either way, for now, we will talk about all of the movies that are coming out on, you know, all the various streaming services. And in fact, all three of the movies we're talking about today, I mentioned them already, The Tomorrow War, Black Widow, No Sudden Move, all available on different streaming services, right? The Tomorrow War on Amazon Prime, Black Widow on Disney+, Plus, which I did pay for. We'll talk about that in the review. And uh, No Sudden Move, which was on HBO Max in the United States and in in Crave uh, in Canada. And that's exactly how I watched all of them. Obviously, it did not go to a theater. So, you know, the streaming services continue to pump out or at least make available a lot of these big-time movies. And I got to say, I enjoyed 
all three of these films. I gotta say, like, certainly to different degrees and in different ways. Um, but uh, yeah, why don't we just get to the st- three reviews right away and you can, you'll see what I mean. So without further ado, here is Amazon Prime's offering for this episode, The Tomorrow War, starring Chris Pratt. Alright, so confession, or I guess just a reminder, when I initially saw the trailer for The Tomorrow War, and I talked about this, I want to say two straight episodes, last episode and the episode prior, uh, I confessed that I thought the trailer for this movie looked like complete garbage. I thought it looked awful, stupid, boring, contrived, you know, whatever you want to use, whatever negative connotation, adjective you want to use, I probably either said it or thought it about the Tomorrow War. And I mean, like, based on how I'm starting this, you can probably already guess that I didn't hate this movie, but I gotta say, I think one of the most interesting aspects of the Tomorrow War isn't really any plot device or character development or acting or CGI or anything like that. We can talk about all that stuff, certainly. We can do all that stuff, Okay. What really made me pause and think after the Tomorrow War, and gosh, did you ever think you'd pause and think after watching some schlocky summer blockbuster? Probably not, right? But for me, what made me stop and think was that this is the perfect midsummer, nothing to it, popcorn, sci-fi action movie. You know what I mean? Like, it is the perfect throwaway movie that you and your friends go see on a whim in the middle of the week because you guys are on on a Thursday or a Friday or something right for what you you guys want to just kill a couple hours and you want to go see a movie I've done that with my friends a million times a million times I've done that with so many of my friends dating back to high school, my cousins, right, my roommate, um, my former roommate, I should say, since he moved out. Um, but at the same time, like we, we, I've gone to see he and I live together for almost four years. Okay, actually, just about the, the amount of time I've been doing this podcast. Funnily enough, because uh, I believe uh, the four four year anniversary was a couple of weeks ago, and I completely forgot. So, yay us, right? Yay, yay for everyone still listening, dating back four years, right? But in those four years, it's crazy to think that. I have seen, like, hundreds of movies in theaters, and a lot of them were with him. And, again, The Tomorrow War is just the perfect example of a kind of movie we would go and then never think about again, right? And I gotta say, watching this movie at home on Amazon Prime made me feel, like, honestly, for one of the first times during the pandemic, like, normal, I guess, when it comes to movies. And, I mean, how could you really say that? Because... You know, you're watching it on your couch, you're not sitting in a theater, you're not buying popcorn, and you're not, you know, greasy fingers and the the gigantic Coke that you have to hold with two hands and all all sorts of stuff, right? Uh, Certainly not entirely normal, but there was a degree of normalcy to watching this movie. It felt oddly comforting. Maybe it's because it was a little evocative of, like, the schlock that you saw in the 90s and, and you know, early to mid-2000s, right? It was very much that kind of movie. Chris Pratt does kind of seem like the kind of action star that could have coexisted with Will Smith, and they, they kind of reference Will Smith a couple times in this movie. And, I mean, look, it's, like, it's kind of like aspects of Independence Day crossed with 
starship troopers crossed with alien versus predator right and all of those movies have fun parts and all of those movies have incredibly idiotic parts right like this movie i would i dare i say that tomorrow war the tomorrow war is one of those films where at almost every turn you either to your the person you're watching it with or to yourself because i watch this movie by myself uh, like i do a lot of movies these days but uh you think to yourself why didn't they just do blank right like why didn't like or, or why did they do blank right like why did chris pratt dive off the catwalk with the 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 toxin that could save the world instead of just staying put why didn't this guy change his clothes before reporting to basic training? Why didn't this? Why did that? Right? It, it's just there was a lot of examples in this movie that you could probably question, and you'd be perfectly valid for doing so. But I don't know. This isn't that kind of movie, right? Like it's not the the father. This ain't. You know. This is. You know exactly what you're getting into. Chris Pratt is a competent enough action hero. I guess we knew that going back to Guardians of the Galaxy. Ivan Strahovski, also very good. J.K. Simmons, you know what you're getting from him as well, right? Also, uh, skinny, ripped J.K. Simmons, like going back to even like Whiplash and stuff. He's scary. He's kind of scary, right? But again, he was fine in this role, like, you know, the limited action we saw him in towards the end. You probably can guess exactly every aspect of the story beats based on the time travel thing and all sorts of stuff. And, you know, we, we can talk about the time paradox stuff as well. I mean, that, that, kind, of, that kind of time stuff is always going to screw with your head. You know, people, people have that question going back to Back to the Future and then again in Avengers Endgame and now again with the Tomorrow War. Again, I'm not putting those movies in, in the same class at all, but just time movies always make people say, again, why didn't they just do this or why didn't they do that? I don't think it's all that important, honestly. I the the marginal explanations you get for basically everything in this film, I think, are just vehicles for you to watch Chris Pratt shoot a bunch of scary-looking aliens, right? I actually think that the aliens, the, what they call white spikes in this movie, I think the aliens are probably the best part. The CGI with how they introduced them initially, like I think you don't see any pictures or video when you first go into when they first go into uh, the the basic training, and then the one of the lieutenants basically says. Well, if we saw, if we showed the average person, the populace, what these aliens looked like, then no one would report to basic training ever. Everyone would be deserters because the whole pro, the whole, I guess I, I didn't talk about it, but the whole bare plot of the movie is that aliens invade Earth in like 2050 or something like that, and you know they they're losing the war, so they send people back in time to 2022 to uh, get. I guess, infantry, soldiers, grunts to help them fight in the future, right? And it makes them for some interesting, like, economic discussions, right? Like, what would the world be like if you knew it was going to, quote-unquote, end in 30 years, right? And they kind of sort of tackle that, but, I mean, by and large, it's just Chris Pratt shooting aliens, right? Again, the aliens were really cool-looking. They were introduced in a really scary way. It it, it was kind of, I mentioned Starship Troopers earlier. It did kind of remind me of Starship Troopers in the sense that like, at the very beginning, if you remember that movie, like, the first alien they come across, like, is scary and is unstoppable. And then by the end of the movie, every like, grunt who knows how to pull the trigger is killing, like, aliens by the by the score, scores of aliens, right? Killing them by the thousands, it seems. Very much so the same kinda here. Um, I, I suspect it was intentional, right? Because, I mean, you, you know, they can't have every single alien be unstoppable to every single character you see from a personal viewpoint. Because otherwise... 
nothing would happen, right? Like you never, you never get anything done in the movie. So I understand, but at the same time, it's just kind of funny to note. Um, yeah, the acting is fine. The action was pretty fun. There were some some decent comedic moments as well, like the Charlie character. Uh, he was pretty good. Um, I think uh, Aldous Hodge's brother, um, Edwin Hodge, plays a kind of like the grizzled veteran. And again, I don't actually know if they're related, but I will be, I would bet money that they are because that guy is a spitting image of Aldous Hodge and his, his name is Edwin Hodge, right? So there you go. He plays uh, the Dorian character, another member of their of their group. I think Mary, and I always forget her, this woman's name. I think her name is Mary Lynn Rajskoob. I could be mispronouncing her name, um, but uh, she played one of, the, one of the main characters in 24, the TV show 24. Her name was Chloe, I think, in 24. She helped Jack. She was like Jack's, like, uh, Jack Bauer's, like, I don't know, money penny communications expert type character, right, in 24. And she's in this movie, like, essentially, like, as a glorified cameo. But it was funny because she, like, I guess the whole premise, again, because they're recruiting, like, average people to go into the future, um, you know, it's like you see a chef in his, like, chef outfit, and people are in, like, suits, and people, like, wearing t-shirts, and people wearing cargo shorts, and all sorts of stuff, right? And, I mean, they give you 24 hours to sort out your affairs, so you would imagine they'd, like, change in 24 hours, but whatever. I guess it was just to illustrate the point that average people are in these soldier roles. I feel like that's my only real quibble from it. I mean, like, apart from all the silly stuff they do with, like, guns and sci-fi exposition and whatever, but... My only real quibble is that I think I would have liked to see the average person soldier a little more. I thought that was a compelling way to introduce Chris, Pratt, Chris Pratt's character. Because, again, Chris Pratt, and you, you know this right off the hop, he like oh, via, essentially via like a little bit of narration before you even actually see his face, you learn that he like was in... Uh, he was like a, a captain or something in the Iraq war and he served several tours of duty. And now it's unfair because he's going back to the draft again as a soldier, like an alien. And I guess it was just a convenient way to explain why he is like competent at using a gun and being a soldier. But it was just funny because you didn't really get to see any of the payoff of him helping like the average person. And you, like, as you, as you would imagine, most of the average people die, which again, I suppose is the point, but for like, kind of like an escapism sci-fi action movie. I would have liked to see the average people like Raj Scoob and so on a little more, but that's again, that's like a minor nitpick. But all things considered, I mean, if you, I mentioned Independence Day, Starship Troopers, and Alien vs. Predator. If you are, and I, I would say those are three very different kinds of movies. If you like even one of those films, I think you will find something entertaining in The Tomorrow War. I gotta say, I went into it with, we've talked about expectations and how they can be um, surpassed or, or subverted or what have you. I went into this movie with extremely low expectations. Dare I say zero expectations, right? And what I found instead was definitely a renewed sense of Chris Pratt being able to be like a, an actual bona fide action star, right? I think he's I think he's actually pretty good. I uh, I remembered that I like Yvonne Strahovski, who was in Dexter. She was in Chuck, if you remember. Hell, she was in Mass Effect. I like Mass Effect a lot, and she's a great character in that too, right? So she's pretty great. J.K. Simmons is great, and the supporting actors in their limited roles were funny, and, and uh, they were used sparingly enough that it wasn't, like, grating, I found. So, yeah, I think, you know what, I give this actually, like, if I had to rate it, I know I don't often give ratings on the podcast, if I had to rate this movie, I'm giving it, like, a solid 
three out of five, maybe a three and a half out of five, which I guess would be like a seven out of ten. Seven out of ten seems right to me because it was entertaining. I genuinely laughed aloud at a couple points, and the aliens were scary enough that it looked pretty impressive. The CGI looked kind of cool. It looked pretty real, right? So kudos to them for that. It may be schlocky. Some of the science stuff may be a little unbelievable, and you kind of roll your eyes at some point, but you know what? There haven't been enough of these movies during the pandemic, so maybe there's a little bit of nostalgia fueling what we're talking about here, but hell, I don't really care because I found it entertaining, and you need these kind of movies these days. I, so That's what I think, at least. For the next movie on the docket today, uh, Black Widow, it's interesting, right? Because in 2020, you know what, I take it back, just over the last several years, um, dating all the way back to 2008 when the first Marvel movie, Iron Man, was released, Marvel movies have become so such a familiar sight at a box office, right? Like, when you go to, a, you go to get your tickets, whether you're, whether you're buying them online or not, you go to get your tickets, and you look up at the names of movies that are playing. You think to yourself, what do I want, what do I want to see tonight? Chances are a Marvel movie is a choice, right? Isn't that wild? Like, that's how, how much movies have changed, over the past like 15 years essentially I mean, more than that whatever right i find that uh unendingly interesting right i find that so interesting and i know again we've talked about it kind of before about the idea of marvel movies being roller coasters and not really being films and they're spat out by algorithms and all sorts of stuff and i i think that despite the fact that i enjoy a lot of them by and large that's true but it's just funny that for the first time, basically in a really, really, really long time, 2020 marked the first time where there were no Marvel uh, tentpole releases, right? Like no Marvel feature films hit cinemas in 2020. And of course, Black Widow was going to be that movie, but it's just funny because now here we are in 2021, and I mentioned this off the top, everyone's trying to catch up. So in 2021, you're not going to have one Marvel movie, you're not going to have two Marvel movies, you're going to have three and you had three Marvel series, a TV show. So I think that is hilarious because all the people who are like, yeah, the cinema is better off for not having Marvel movies in it. You're getting an overabundance of them now. And the first one, certainly movie-wise at the very least, is Black Widow. So why don't we talk about Black Widow? It is, of course, a prequel of sorts, right? A midquel, if you can really call it that, fitting uh, just after Civil War, Captain America Civil War, which is essentially what Avengers like 2.5. So why don't we get to the review of Scarlett Johansson's send-off for her character, the Black Widow? First thing I'm going to note here when it comes to Black Widow is that, like with any prequel, midquel, whatever the hell we want to call this, right? With any installment where you know beyond the shadow of a doubt what happens to the main character, the complaint, and I have certainly levied this before, the complaint of there are no stakes always can be made, I think, right? Like you can always find that somewhere. And I think that's 
fair when it comes to Black Widow, like this film specifically, I think. I think that is fair because you know exact because of how many Marvel movies there are, and specifically how many Avengers movies there are, because of course Black Widow is an Avenger. So because you know exactly what happens during the events of Captain America Civil War, which is, I guess, Captain America 3, right, if you want to refer to it like that, um, and because you know exactly what happens, there's a bunch of standalone movies, and then you know exactly what happens in Infinity War, and then you know what happens to Black Widow's character in Endgame, uh, no stakes, really, at all for Scarlett Johansson's character, Natasha Romanoff, right? And I think, like, ultimately speaking, this movie is... Not really about, like, there are stakes, obviously, right? But they're relatively low because, again, you know exactly what happens to her. She has a pretty emotional death in Endgame. It's not a spoiler at this point. It's a pretty huge part. And and I guess that's why they felt that they could finally make this movie. But I guess my, my only criticism of this film is that it just feels like it's too little too late. Isn't that terrible? Like, you kind of, you've been waiting all this time for a female led, female directed, solo action superhero movie right and it is a competent blockbuster it, it, it's nice honestly it is genuinely nice to be able to watch a slick cool looking action-packed quippy blockbuster even if you know it is spat out by an algorithm and that there are clearly defined parameters and boundaries that disney wants you to fill like you know what i mean never color outside the lines we all we know all of those things about marvel right Having said that, Black Widow is, again, competently made, and I don't really find anything super offensive about it, nor do I find anything all that bad about it, right? Like, it, it is probably a slightly above-average Marvel offering. Only reason it's not getting a higher grade is only because it's not that, like, creatively different, right? Like, I think the most... The, the Marvel movies you remember the most are the ones that, like, do dif- something slightly different, right? Like, Guardians of the Galaxy with the music and the type of comedy it was presenting. Or Thor Ragnarok, which which essentially reinvented the character of Thor. Or, I mean, certainly Infinity War and Endgame are kind of their own thing because they're the culmination of virtually every movie up until that point. Or Captain America Winter Soldier. Or, frankly, I, the first Iron Man, right? Like, all of these things, and maybe Iron Man is different because much like Endgame and Infinity War. At the end, it was the beginning. But I think you guys get what I'm going with this, right? Like, the most interesting Marvel movies did something just like a teeny little bit different. And Black Widow doesn't really do anything all that different. It is a, like, I, I almost feel like you could, you could it, it borrowed elements of, like, the middle-born movie, right? Remember those movies, the like the Matt Damon movies? Um, the Born Identity what was it? The Born Supremacy and the Born Ultimatum, and I'll forever complain that the la- latter two have nothing to do with their book co- counterparts other than their titles, uh, which we've talked about before, but that's neither here nor there for the purposes of, of this conversation. But it's like they lifted scenes from the Born Supremacy, combined them with scenes from like The Mummy with Brendan Fraser, and 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 can and combine them with scenes of other like '90s action movies, like '90s early 2000s action movies, and just kind of slap them all together, and then, voila, you got Black Widow, right? And again, no, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing really all that wrong with that. Natasha Romanoff, uh, you kind of already know what she's all about, so they don't really set up. They don't really spend that much time lingering on her motivations. You know exactly what her motivations are. She wants to. What does she say in the Avengers? Um, 
She's got red in her book or red in her ledger or some or something like that, right? So I almost cussed there. Uh, something like that, right? And she's constantly looking for a way to kind of use her roots as an assassin and be an Avenger and seeing the good in people and keeping her heart and blah, 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 right? You don't really – it's nothing all that special, right? That's why I think – like Scarlett Johansson, funnily enough, even though this movie is for her and it is about Romanoff, um, she is like the straight man in this – in this setup, right? Like, there's always some kind of straight man and then always someone else cracking the jokes. Florence Pugh's character, um, Yelena, who is uh, Natasha's, like, not her, like, blood sister, but I guess the whole movie is set up around the premise that Natasha has a young girl, Yelena has a young girl, this woman named Melina, and this man named Alexei were Russian covert operatives, like sleeper agents, who were placed in suburban America in order to, like, infiltrate you know, America on orders from the Soviet Union, right? And and it's funny, actually, I mentioned the Bourne, the Bourne stuff, the original Bourne books, that's exactly what they were about, right? But um, it's funny because uh, I guess the idea is that they were a fake family and later in life they realized that the things they did during their three-year mission in America actually meant a lot and they're actually a real family and okay, yeah, it's a Disney movie, you get where I'm going with this, right? Um, Florence Pugh and David Harbour are the two ones who probably steal this movie the most, right? David Harbour being the Red Guardian, who is, I guess, like the Russian Captain America, and Yelena, who is another operative who is trained um, by the Red Room, right? The uh, organization slash, I don't know, group or whatever that uh, created the the Widows in the first place. That They kind of reference that, I think, in other Marvel movies. Um, and I guess like the the simple plot of this film is that Yelena is freed from the mind control they they subject all of their uh, all of their subjects to I don't know what else to say there subjects and subjecting but um, she basically once she is freed she uh, ropes her her you know erstwhile sister into everything and they go on an adventure to take down the Red Room. So okay, that that's what that's what Natasha was doing in between Civil War and Infinity War, I guess, right? And that's not like the worst thing in the world. It's just like. Again, the stakes are so low, and you know nothing bad is going to happen to Scarlett Johansson, so I don't really care about Natasha Romanoff, which is terrible because this is a movie about Natasha Romanoff. Um, Again, I mentioned David Harbour steals the show as the aging Captain America because he's given a lot of comedic lines, and he is very good at them as the kind of father, you know, the, the, the absentee father who wasn't really a father, while Yelena is the little sister who does still believe in, like, the sanctity of family and so on. And, of course, as you might imagine, like Marvel likes to do, Yelena will be taking on, you you know, the Black Widow mantle going forward. And, again, that's fine. She's obviously, the character is obviously as capable as anyone else. It's just, it, it felt kind of weird that Yelena is the kind of, like, almost like the the one B character in this movie that's not about her, right? That's, again, my biggest complaint, that this movie is not really about Black Widow. I don't know. I get the, the, the villain also is something else. Ray Winstone plays the villain, okay? And I've seen Ray Winstone, as I'm sure you have, in like a million movies over the years. Uh, remember he was in Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull? I know we tried to forget that film, but whatever. Ray Winstone has been in a million movies, and he has, like, the heaviest English accent. Like, I... I, I, I didn't even mention Rachel, Rachel Vice, and she is fine too, as like the as their uh, quote unquote fake mother. But I mean, we know what Rachel Vice's accent sounds like in real life, right? I mentioned the Mummy before; she's in that movie. We know exactly what her accent sounds. Maybe it's not quite that heavy, like the Oh, hello there, Mister Mummy, right? It's not. It's not quite like that. But 
you know, Rachel Weisz is extremely famous. We know we know what her, her accent sounds like. Same goes for Ray Winston. Ray Winstone, pardon me. And he has like the like the old timey English accent, like "Hello there, welcome to Morlea," right? And he's being asked to play a Russian general, Drykov. And I, I just, I love Ray Winston. I think he's a talented actor. I do not think he could have gotten very far if he was asked to do more of those roles. He stinks at doing a Russian accent. It is not even close. Like David Harbour does a great Russian accent. Fantastic job. Maybe it's easier for him because I, I think he's American, um, and you kind of know you kind of know what his accent sounds. It sounds like my accent by and large, right? But <laughs> Ray Winston, my God, is I mean that it, it made him, made it hard to take him seriously. I gotta say, like I, I it was strange to like watch his mouth move. It was so weird. Um, maybe the other half of it too is that he had some really weird dialogue things, right? I, I think he is essentially supposed to be like a like the movie basically takes a turn halfway through, and you you essentially learn it's about child trafficking and it's about um, the exploitation of women, and I think like. There are some really interesting ideas there, but like there was a line where Ray Winston's character Drykov says something like, "I'm going to wi- I'm going to take over the world using the only resource there's too much of, girls." And you're like, "Excuse me, come again, girls?" And again, it's about child trafficking, and now he's like taking these forgotten children and turning them into black widows, essentially against their will. But and again, that that fascinating idea there. And a very disturbing one as well, because this guy, I you know, get the sense that he's kind of like the Harvey Weinstein of of this whole thing. And, uh, you know, like he, like there's a very, again, a, a very affecting scene where he punches Scarlett Johansson in the face and it made me uncomfortable. Like, I got to say, it made me, made me uncomfortable, even though we have seen Natasha Romanoff get beaten the hell up, like in the Marvel movies, right? So I think they, like they were like little twinges of interesting ideas they could have gone, but it's like buried under the fact that the movie is not that long and they still have to essentially thwart his plans and destroy the Red Room and come up with a magic potion that frees them all from their control. You know what I mean? Like again, the good ideas get buried under the the rest of the marvelness of it all, I suppose. And it also gets buried under just the copious amounts of action. And that one I'm not going to complain about because... You know, you go to see a Marvel movie, you want to see tons of action. Uh, but it was just an interesting, I, I feel like an interesting choice, right? The other thing, too, is with Scarlett Johansson's history going all the way back to Iron Man 2, remember when she was, that was the first time you saw her in the Marvel Universe. And she was essentially introduced as, like, the eye candy character in that film until Tony, because Tony's a womanizer. And then you learn that she is, oh my gosh, she's actually the Black Widow, right, from the comic books, right? Like, and you as the viewer would have that realization, and Tony realizes she's like a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent, and she's a spy, and she does all this really cool stuff. Ever since Iron Man 2, any appearance that Scarlett Johansson as an actor has had in the Marvel Universe, there have been gratuitous shots of her, like, body and butt, let's say, in, like, the skin-tight outfits that she wears. And, again, I, I, you know... I, I, like, half complain because I think that, like, people want that kind of stuff. Like, you know, like sweaty nerds like me want want that kind of stuff. But at the same time, like, it's so gratuitous after a point, it almost feels like you should look away. I In my opinion, right? Like, you don't, you don't necessarily need too much of that. 
over the course of the movies, and yet they are in every single film, right? And, and uh, Scarlett Johansson, I almost said Natasha Romanoff, Johansson herself has said in various interviews that she feels like the Black Widow has been overly sexualized, right? And and we, we know that the history of the character does have some, like, almost like James Bond, like she uses her sexuality to get what she wants, and fine, that's okay. But I guess I kind of expected in Black Widow, in this film, I kind of expected that to not be there, uh, like that, I guess maybe, you know, for there not to be like the male gaze, I guess, quote unquote. And there were like a gratuitous amount of butt shots in this film, like maybe even more than whenever the last time I saw Black Widow as a character in any individual scene of, of a Marvel movie. It just felt kind of strange. Like, I, you know, I, I guess I expected the female director part of it to remove that from the equation and it didn't. Right. And again, we talked about these movies being made in very specific parameters and with very very specific definitions, color inside the lines, like we said before. Maybe that was a part of it, but at the same time, it was just kind of weird. I, I don't know. I, it left a funny taste in my mouth, but look, ultimately, I know, unfortunately, really, that that kind of stuff doesn't really resonate with too many people because when you look at this kind of movie, you want to know, does she blow up a lot of stuff? Does she look cool doing it? Because ultimately, that's what you want from your Avengers, right? You want them to beat up multiple nameless bad guys, and you want them to look cool doing it, and she does. So in that sense, Black Widow accomplishes exactly what it set out to do, even if I think it is like 10 years too late. Like there, In my opinion, there's no reason this movie couldn't have just been made after Civil War and taken place chronologically and without without this after-credit scene, because of course there's an after-credit scene, right? I just, I don't really see why it had to wait so long, right? I just feel like because they did wait so long, it unfortunately lost a little bit of its oomph, right? Because now you're all just waiting for the next Shang-Chi movie or for the next Eternals movie or for the Spider-Man 3 or whatever, right? Like, that's what you're waiting for now, unfortunately, right? So, anyways, I think uh, Black Widow, again, competently made, ably made action movie, um, has an interesting villain, Taskmaster. Uh, I haven't really talked about that character at all, I don't really know too much about Taskmaster from the comics other than I I think I like you fight him or something or you play as him. Remember in those X-Men Legends slash Marvel Ultimate Alliance video games? I used to play those a lot when I was in high school with my pals. And um, I want to say Taskmaster was in that and like, you know, he's a mimic. He fights a Captain America and Black Panther and Hawkeye, uh, you know, all, all at the same time and Black Widow, all the Widows, uh, all at the same time. I will say the kind of half reveal of this character who is under there was vaguely interesting. But again, Taskmaster is also very barely used in this film. And in fact, I would say the biggest, the most underwhelming part is that most of the fights you see in the film were actually showed in all the million trailers. Black Widow was the most advertised movie I've ever seen, probably. And a lot of the really cool parts in the trailers like, there wasn't that much more to them, right? And that includes the villain. So that's unfortunate, but all the same, like I was saying, competently made movie, cool action sequences, some funny, quippy moments, and you got some new characters to boot that stick around into the current day, the present day of the Marvel timeline, so you're sure to be seeing them again soon, the way the MCU works. All right, the last movie on the schedule today is uh, we talked about the Amazon Prime movie, we talked about the Disney movie, and now we'll talk about the 
HBO Max slash Crave movie, if you've watched it in Canada like I did. No Sudden Move, directed by Steven Soderbergh, and having just a whole cast of characters. I mean, this movie starred Don Cheadle, Benicio Del Toro, Kieran Culkin, very briefly, John Hamm, and a whole bunch of other people in, in very delightful cameos. So let's get to the review for Soderbergh's latest movie, No Sudden Move. Last time I saw Steven Soderbergh movie was The Laundromat. Remember that? I think we talked about that on this podcast, right? That was the movie with Antonio Banderas and Gary Oldman, I think. Yeah, that was that Netflix movie from a couple of years ago. Maybe it was even last year. I genuinely don't remember. But I remember being kind of underwhelmed by it. You know what I mean? Like, I remember Meryl Streep was in that movie, too. I remember it just being kind of, yeah. It was fine. Had some interesting ideas, but ultimately speaking, you know, I I feel like it kind of got bogged down in what it was trying to say. And I'm very pleased to say that No Sudden Move was not like that at all, right? It was very clear. Um, It was written by Ed Solomon, who has written a number of movies. I think my favorite being Men in Black, right? So Ed Solomon, follow him on Twitter. He's a great follow, too. But uh, No Sudden Move is another crime movie. And, of course, Steven Soderbergh... I mean, he certainly got to the big success of his career was all the way back in 2000. It was either 1999 or 2000, right? When he when he made Aaron Brockovich and Traffic in the same year. I think it was 2000. I want to say that's when it came out. And I think he won Best Director for, I want to say, Traffic, right? And that was also the year, of course, that, uh, that uh, Julia Roberts won Best Actress for Aaron Brockovich. But... Ever since then, you know, Steven Soderbergh has really, like, he's always made weird kind of films, right? Like, his movies are kind of, there's, like, some kind of experimental something, or there's some kind of, like, there is a uniqueness to watching a Soderbergh film that you don't always get. I mean, hell, he did, I think he directed the, the Oscars last year, like, this past year, right, in, tw- in 2021, and... Again, I guess uh, the Ocean's uh, the Ocean's movies, right? Ocean's 11, 12, and 13 are also Soderbergh movies. And um, at, least, at least the first two are. I'm not actually sure if Ocean's 13 is now that I think about it. But either way, he directed the first two. And those, those remakes were highly successful, right? I think like certainly because of the actors he picked. But it was so slick, right? It was everything that made sense. And No Sudden Move m- might not be as slick as the Oceans movies, right? I think certainly by by design, but it is another crime caper, and uh, it is based on something in real life. Uh, I'm not going to try and explain it, but it is essentially related to the big four automobile manufacturers and something that they were trying to cover up and, you know, small-time crooks that get kind of brought into the plan, right? So the, the basic idea behind No Sudden Move is that these uh, disposable crooks who are going to be killed after the fact are are told to essentially be a part of an operation where they steal like a document from some firm, right? Some accounting firm somewhere. And it goes wrong. And two of the crooks are, you know, too wise for their own good. They avoid uh, being killed and decide to find out who set them up. And it kind of, you know, spirals out of control, as you might imagine. And uh, as I mentioned before, Don Cheadle, Benicio Del Toro, 
Kieran Culkin are the three crooks. You got David Harbour. Finally, again, finally, we're doing two episodes, like two reviews on a, on two different David Harbour movies. Who would ever have thought, right? But Harbour is in this as well. John Hamm is in this movie. Matt Damon is in this movie. Ray Liotta is in this film. Um, a whole host of other actors as well. But I would say they're the most famous. And, and look, they don't really disappoint. I got to say, like all of their... Ray Liotta's not in it a whole hell of a lot. John Hamm only has maybe two or three scenes. But they all deliver, I would say, right? The bulk of the the heavy lifting is being done by Don Cheadle and Benicio Del Toro. Benicio Del Toro was in traffic, if I'm not mistaken. And I'm not sure if Soderbergh has ever worked with Cheadle, but, I mean, he is my favorite character in this film, the character character, uh, Kurt. And... He is as close to a protagonist as you'll get in this film because there's so much backstabbing and betrayal that goes on. It's kind of hard to keep it straight. And I think sometimes the audio levels in this movie make it sometimes hard to understand the dialogue. But I will say this. I think the portrayal that Don Cheadle gives of Kurt, a guy who is, uh, I guess, just out of prison and is is certainly a, a bad guy, like in terms of committing crimes over the course of his life, that... He's trying to get past, I guess. I don't know that he necessarily feels remorse for any of these acts, but he definitely, and he's definitely a killer, as we've seen multiple times in the movie, but he is definitely a guy who is just trying to make a couple of things right. And I will, have, I have said this before on the podcast, but I've always been a fan of movies that don't show you, right? Like they, they you know, you always want that sometimes, but you know, the, the, when the movie assumes and when the director assumes that you, the viewer, are smart enough to infer, I'm a big fan of that, right? And there is something in Kurt's past that he doesn't deign to explain too, too much. He explains it to some characters and some, you know, it's, it's something about a piece of land that he, he wants to own or does own or should have owned. And he's just trying to scrape up enough money to get by, to get back to this piece of land. And of course, remember, this takes place in the 50s. I didn't mention that, but it takes place in the 50s in Detroit. And Detroit was already a very racially divided city. And so he kind of has to contend with that as well. And again, the idea of all of these people doing, trying to just get by while the rich get richer is a very prevalent idea and theme in this movie. The idea of race and the idea of class, right? Um, I forget if I mentioned this already or not, but Matt Damon makes a cameo in this film as, I guess, like as close to the main bad guy of this movie as you can imagine. Because essentially the idea is when they figure out that the document they they were hired to steal, Don Cheadle and Benicio Del Toro's characters, um, Ronald is Benicio Del Toro's character. So when Kurt and Ronald figure out what they were meant to steal, they learn it's like some kind of car part. It's something to do with car parts. And, of course, Detroit is where a lot of automobile manufacturers are uh, are located, right? Their headquarters are located in Detroit. Ford is certainly there, and a whole bunch of others are as well. GM was, right? So uh, they find out it has something to do with cars, and so they essentially blackmail their way up the chain so they can sell this piece of confidential car information back to somebody for a substantial amount of money. And they go to one person, they go to another person, they go to another person. And they finally get to Matt Damon's character, who is, I guess, like, he is so wealthy that even in the 50s, he can afford to give away about $400,000 cash and have it be a rounding error for him, right? Like, he literally says, it's like a lizard's tail. It grows back, he works, it grows, he sleeps, it grows, he'll call his banker in the morning, and it won't be lost. And and he makes bu- a bunch of references. And it's funny because throughout the film, there's a bounty that gets put out on Kurt and Ronald. 
And so Kurt's name is Kurt Goines, and Ronald's name is Ronald Russo, right? And of course, Benicio Del Toro is not white, but they refer to him as white throughout the entire film. And at the very end of the movie, they talk about their names, right? Like with Matt Damon, the three of them talk about their names. And there's a part where uh, Benicio Del Toro's character, Ronald, remembers um, Matt Damon's character, Michael, right? Mike Lowenstein. And uh, from a from a a part of the, like something that happened well before the film. And it turns out they met each other once in passing and that Matt Damon or that Michael's character does remember. Right. And he talks about how his name was Lewinstein, I guess with the umlaut. And he, uh, he changed it because it was hampering the view of him overseas. Right. So he changed it just to be Mike Lowen, which is a much more American sounding name. And it's funny because he talks, he looks directly at Ronald and says, yes, hello, Mr. Russo, when he does like the air quotes. And I guess you could take that to mean as he just simply knows what his real name is, and that's just an alias. But it also, I think, implies that his real name is is something ethnic, right? It's something not as American sounding as Russo, right? And again, I think that's a very fascinating part of this film because, um, you know, again, Detroit was a very racially divided city at the time, as I've already mentioned. And... It's just how they were viewed, right? Like, like there's a, another scene towards the end of the film. John Hamm plays a police officer and kind of looks like he's on the take, right? And he meets with, like, the black gang members that uh, have kidnapped Kurt towards the end of the film. And, he ba- like, there's a whole whole spiel about how if, if John Hamm arrests him, it's, you know, it'll be good, it'll be bad because the city will be viewing, like, the white police just harassing another black guy. It's, again, it's a movie very much made of our time, but there's a, you know, and then Matt Damon has the whole speech about how, you know, it doesn't, money doesn't matter to him and how people like you, and he's saying this to the two minorities of Benicio Del Toro and Don Cheadle, live by the rules that people like him, Matt Damon, have created while he lives by the rules that only God has created, right? So I guess he's kind of implying that he is like God to them. And it's true. I mean, that's a real thing, right? Like that is how some people think today. And dare I say, that's how a lot of people think today. And again, I've, I've said this before in, in like, again, quote unquote, real life. I don't know if I've ever, ever said this on this podcast. I genuinely think the greatest gosh, con, that people, like, that the, the that the rich have ever pulled on anyone is convincing the middle class to hate the poor and to, and to convince the poor to also hate the poor, right? It is that they convinced, like, the rich have convinced everyone else that they too could be rich if only for this one thing standing in their way. And that's just like that's like a despicable thing right that's like that's why whenever you have these conversations i know we're getting off the movie here but that's why whenever you have these conversations about should jeff bezos pay more in income tax right jeff Be- like people would people say that if jeff bezos had to pay more tax he would have to pay 5 billion with a b dollars in tax people will say well that's too much money he earned his money jeff bezos the last time i checked this was like literally earlier today right before i recorded this podcast jeff bezos literally overnight will make about eight to nine billion again with a B dollars overnight. And, and and you're saying that it's too much money for in a year for him to pay five billion dollars in taxes? Like it's it's just I don't know. It's a symptom of our society that has always been there, right? A symptom of a sickness I should I suppose I should say that's in, within society. 
It's always been there. Um, maybe that's just a symptom of what capitalism is and does and uh, what what happens when the world operates under such a system for so long that everyone's about all about getting theirs. And again, I guess to bring this back to the movie, that is what the movie is about. Everyone is trying to get theirs, and it is to- it's a story where everyone is backstabbing each other for, for, for money, essentially, because they think it'll make their lives easier. Whereas at the end of the movie, <laughs> Matt Damon gets all the money back. Like, through circumstance, he gets all of his own money back plus more money from other people he has essentially victimized. And he's kind of just like, yeah, okay. And then instead of giving John Hamm, who presents him the money at the end of the film, instead of giving him, like, a cut of the money, he says, why don't you take that bottle of scotch over there? It's, it goes for about $88 wholesale. And John Hamm goes, wow, thanks, and then walks away, right? And it's... I guess that's the that's at the core of the 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 movie. That's the message, right? That the rich just don't care about you, and that the rich will step all over you to get what they want. And there's a little title card t- talking about how you know when the in the '60s the government levied a fine against the big four automobile manufacturers because of the pollution they were adding to the environment and the the piece of machinery that was detailed in these blueprints these guys stole uh, stole were were added to cars you know, mandatory added to cars uh, later on in life and no fines were ever levied, right? So it just, I don't know. I think that's the message Steven Soderbergh is trying to tell, which is essentially the rich will stay rich and society and the rules that govern it are created to benefit those people and nobody else, right? We know that already, but, and maybe that's a really, I, I, I wouldn't say it's a subtle message of this film, but I think there are people who will watch this movie and say to themselves, Oh, that was an interesting movie about like a black guy stealing some papers, right? Like that's I honestly think there will be there will be people out there who watch it and say, Ah, it's boring or it was too hard to follow when in reality a lot of it doesn't really matter. It's just about that story and that message. I don't know. I find it I think it was great. I think it was fascinating. It is admittedly, if we're just gonna bring it back to the movie granular details of the movie, it is a little slow, I I admit, right? And again, there's so much that goes on. Like This is not a movie. I'll wrap on this. This is not a movie you can watch while you're on your phone. Black Widow may be one of those movies. Uh, hell, The Tomorrow War may be even one of those movies. But No Sudden Move is not a movie you can watch while idly doing stuff on your phone. You have to put that phone down and watch this film. So if you don't have like an hour and 45 minutes or two hours to, to, to dedicate to watching No Sudden Move, you won't like it because it requires that you give it that much time. But if you do and you, and you think about the same things that I thought about, I think you will greatly enjoy uh, Steven Soderbergh's latest offering. That is it for uh, reviews on this episode of the Showtime movie podcast. You know what actually just occurred to me? One actor I didn't mention who was in No Sudden Move. This was not really, you know, it wasn't a crucial part of the review. But one actor I just straight up forgot to mention, which is funny because we talked about Rachel Weisz in Black Widow and The Mummy, was Brendan Fraser. Brendan Fraser actually was in... Uh, no sudden move for like a, a, a decent chunk again probably as much as any of the other bit characters like john ham or, or ray liotta right but um he was like really kind of like fat honestly like I, I think he was in another movie where he had to gain weight so i'm sure it was a part of it was that but if you haven't read it there was a great uh great profile of brendan fraser that you can find in gq magazine and you can i think you can just find it on their website by typing in Brendan Fraser, but it was fascinating. Like he talks about his life and he talks about how he's kind of disappeared from movies over the past like 10 years and 
how he was essentially poised to be one of the most famous leading men in Hollywood. He had the, he was funny and he was handsome and all sorts of stuff. And how, how all these different factors essentially derailed his career and how he's at peace with it now, I think. Um, but it was fascinating. I think one, one of the most surprising things about that article was that he talks about how, certainly going back to movies like The Mummy, but other films as well, how he was asked to do a lot of his own stunts, right? Or he, how he volunteered, at the very least, to do a lot of his own stunts and a lot of the kind of rough and tumble stuff and how he got so many injuries from doing that. That was another big reason why he stepped back from making movies and he has a lot of aches and pains still today, like almost like an athlete, right? And I thought that was fascinating, if a little sad, because I really like Brendan Fraser, right? I think The Mummy, Mummy is one of the one of my favorite action movies of my childhood i would say right like of the what like the mid to late 90s right i forget when that movie came out like 1990 1999 i want to say 98 99 right um right around the time i guess uh, traffic was made funnily enough right but anyways again not a huge not a huge part of the review but uh, if you if you want to see brendan fraser in something current uh, no sudden move is also another reason uh you should watch it so there you go but uh, again yeah those are the three movies we did in today's episode, uh, The Tomorrow War, Black Widow, and No Sudden Move. Um, I think by the next time we do an episode, we might do one before I see Fast and the Furious 9, but uh, well, we will do that at some point. And I mentioned Black Widow uh, in the Marvel stuff. I think in the coming months, like before the end of summer, once Loki is done, and Loki will be the last, I believe, Marvel like Disney plus TV show that will be uh, offered up to viewers uh, before movies start kicking back in, right? Because we, like I said, Shang-Chi, The Eternals, and Spider-Man No Way Home are all coming out before the end of this calendar year. So we're going to talk a lot about Marvel at some point this year. But I, I thought it would be interesting to take stock of the Marvel Universe now that Black Widow is out. I could do that by myself, certainly, but we haven't had a guest on the pod in ages. So why don't we do that? Um, some someone who has been on the pod before will will join. I think probably my pal Josh Goldberg, um, who I work with and is one of my good friends, and he's a big movie guy, big Marvel movie guy as well. So once he's seen Black Widow, maybe in the coming weeks, if we're still waiting for theaters to reopen, or, or at least waiting for us to be able to go see movies, we'll do something with Josh on the Marvel stuff. But there are a lot of interesting movies coming out. I did mention in the last episode that I'm waiting to get my TIFF accreditation. And again, who knows if I get it? I don't think it's going to happen. But even if it doesn't, I still will be seeing a couple of movies at TIFF this year, including Dune, um, including The Last Night in Soho. That looks like an, another fascinating film. Kind of scary, honestly. So, um, And a whole host of others, right? Like, there are a lot of movies coming out in the next, even by the end of August, like, even before we, we get to TIFF. There are going to be a lot of movies coming out commercially that any of us can go see at any time. So uh, I hope you enjoy listening to the sound of my voice because we're going to be talking about movies a lot over the next 60 days or so. But again, uh, I always appreciate you guys listening to my my podcast. I know it's not a huge following, but hey, it's a hobby and I enjoy uh, being able to share my, my passion and my thoughts with you all. So I hope you are all staying safe. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Showtime Movie Podcast. And as always, until next time, have a great night. I